Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book and hear from the author. In this program, that book is Reporting Conflict by an old BBC colleague of mine, James Rogers. Since the Crimean War, journalists have tried to make sense of wars and conflicts for their audiences, facing an extraordinary array of challenges in doing so. James himself reported from several conflict zones, from Gaza to Chechnya, Iraq and Georgia. And what makes this book special is his interweaving of personal experience experience with the wider questions about war reporting and how it's changing. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, joining us uh, here in the studio above a very sunny Westminster in the heart of London is James Rogers, a former colleague of mine from the BBC, who's here to talk about his book, Reporting Conflict. Uh, Hi, James. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, Love the book. um, And I found it absolutely fascinating, as both of us have served as foreign correspondents. I haven't actually been in a war zone, but obviously I've, uh, I've, I've served in other bits of the BBC covering conflict. Um, And I thought that the best thing about this was that although it's quite a slim book, it's a very complete book about a very, very complicated subject. Can you just give us a little bit about your background, which is so integral to how you put the book together and explain how you actually came to to write the book and and what was it that that, that, um, pushed you into some of the conclusions that you uh, came up with? Well, I was very keen after 20 years as a journalist. I spent five years working for Reuters Television, a television news agency, and um, then 15 for the BBC. Most of my time at the BBC I spent as a foreign correspondent. I did four foreign postings. I think out of my 15 years at the BBC, I was um, working in international news outside the UK for 11 of those years. And... um, At the end of that time, I was very, very keen to write a book. I didn't want to write a a journalistic memoir, really. That wasn't... uh, There there are many of those very commendable commendable journalistic memoirs, but that wasn't really my purpose. I wanted to try to say something uh, hopefully enduring about the nature of reporting conflict and also to, from a personal point of view, to reflect on my experience of the world as I'd seen it change. Um, the two milestones I see in the history of the last 20 years and which have really stand as seminal moments in my career as a journalist are the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, and the attacks of September the 11th. And most of the conflicts which I write about in the book, most of those which I reported on, can be traced either directly or indirectly to those two big world events. So that's what I wanted to try to say something about that. And I wanted to, uh, and I think this is the most important point, to say something about the way uh, in which changing technology has changed the way in which journalists work. Um, I'm not somebody who says uh, new technology is making life impossible for journalists, quite the contrary, but nor am I somebody who says new technology is solving all the problems and tyrants had better beware because Twitter's going to bring them down because I, neither do I see the world in that way either. So I want to try to draw out some of the complexities um, which have been involved in that. But most particularly um, in my profession of the last two years as a lecturer in journalism and communications, I want to try to bridge the gap a little bit between journalistic practice and academic study and teaching of journalism because I think there is a very big gap. Uh, As I note in the introduction to the book, journalists, I don't think, generally read what academics say about them. And I think to a large extent... Um, A lot of media and communications academics are unfortunately to a great extent talking to each other and they're Mm -hmm. not having effect on practice in the way which they would probably like. And I know that um, certainly in this country, journalism has not been um, traditionally an academic discipline. It's something that's really grown in the last five or ten years. And I hope that with that um, expansion of courses that there will be more people like myself who come from a long-term background of journalistic practice coming into academia, and I hope that the two will try to inform each other, and that's certainly one of my main purposes in writing the book. Uh, just to pick up on, on, on that particular point, I've always 
thought that one of the strongest suits that British journalism has to play, obviously the BBC is where we both used to work, and maybe that's the exemplar of this, is that it was treated almost like a craft. It was something that you learned actually by doing it, as opposed to sort of sitting there reading a few books, reading the, the theory and then being able to say, right, well, this is what the textbook says. Um, what are your thoughts about that? No, I think that's very true. But I, I do, there are certain things, I mean, my whole, my whole, my overriding motive and my overriding guiding principle as a lecturer in journalism is to try to uh, teach the next generation of journalists what I wish I'd known myself 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the useful lessons which I feel I've picked up along the way. And practical ones, of course, I would quite agree with you. I mean, when I'm ta- teaching some of my students now and they're saying, oh, this audio editing software is really impossible or it's really hard, I reassure them with the fact that, you know, a lot of these things you do have to learn yourself. I mean, I mm-hmm. think when, I, when we first started using um, digital audio editing at the BBC, I think I was given a two- or three-hour training session. And thereafter, you know, having been taught the basics, I learnt on the job, and I'm a great believer in that. However, I think you can, um, you can make it easier for people by pointing them in the right direction. And for me, it's about sharing the benefit of experience. But I think, too... Um, one thing which I was very aware of, uh, and particularly in the process of writing the book, I came to reflect upon more and more, is that you don't really, when you are a working journalist, particularly on a breaking news story and particularly in conflict zones where you really are thinking about what happens in the next few hours and not much more than that, you don't really think about what the greater significance of what you're doing is. Mm-hmm. I think to a very large extent, at least not publicly. You might discuss it with friends afterwards or you might discuss it with colleagues. Almost on an institutional basis as yeah. well. Sort of, did I do the, the best job for what I was being asked to do by programme editors, etc.? That's right. And I, and I, don't, think, I don't think working journalists, because of the pressure which they're under, and that's only increasing, I would add, always reflect to a sufficient extent about the role of journalism in society or the role of journalism in international relations. And I think that's something that it's very useful to reflect on afterwards. So I think if some of those lessons can be imparted, or at least some of those theories introduced in, in university journalism departments, then so much the better. But um, I do, you know, I do share a, a form, you know, a journalist cynicism about the idea that learning about international communications theory is going to make you a good reporter. It's not. You know, you still mm. need to be able to write 200 words about a fire in a building without going into a long analytical piece about the nature of fire. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that, that, that's a crude example, but I hope you can understand what I'm driving at. You do need those exactly. core craft skills. And in fact, one of the things that makes your book so good, is, and maybe this is a reason why it's so complete, is because you were able to draw so much upon your own experiences, whether it's in, in Chechnya, whether it's in, uh, whether it's in the, the Georgia of Gamsakurdia, or whether it's in Iraq or, or Gaza. Um, but moving on from that bit, let's get to one of the bits where you talk uh, in more theoretical terms. And you say that there are three forces that shape journalism in, in wartime, in your estimation, and that is the personal, the political and the technological. Can you, can you just flesh that out a bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I deliberately um, made that list very simple. I mean, the, the definition I offer of political includes um, ideas of economics and other forces at work uh, in, in international relations. But I wanted to try to... That was my main sort of um, conclusion over 20 years. And I think... Um, and the political one I would draw particular attention to because I think a lot of journalists imagine that, oh, we're just um, reporting the news as it is, and they don't ever pause to reflect upon how those priorities might um, have been formed. Uh, And it's my strong feeling, it's perhaps rather a bleak one after 20 years in international news, it's my strong feeling that, and I suspect many people would disagree with this, but it is my strong feeling that many editorial priorities are dictated by government uh, and diplomatic priorities too. The big glaring example for me, for journalists of my generation who worked in the former Soviet Union, was the first Chechen War in 1995, Now, uh, and of course which was followed by a second conflict in 1999. It was quite clear on that occasion that there was really very little was going to happen in terms of international pressure. There was condemnation from various Western countries, including, of course, the United Kingdom, the United States and the European Union, of the large number of civilian casualties, that were the large number of civilian deaths which were occurring in that conflict. But consider the larger geopolitical picture at the time. It was the end of the Cold War. The Cold War had really only just ended. The, the demise of the Soviet Union was only a few years back. Um, the Communist Party 
in Russia was still very strong. There was every possibility, particularly given the economic hardship that many Russian people were suffering in the post-Soviet period, that there would be some kind of Marxist-Leninist administration return to that country. There was clearly no incentive for the West to do anything more than offer verbal criticism of the Boris Yeltsin administration for what was going on in Chechnya. Now, because of that, although this was a very spectacular war, it was definitely one of the consequences of the end of the Cold War and the cracking of those power blocks, um, but I, I would argue that the consequences of that were eventually, because nothing was going to come of this, because there was going to be no international intervention, then it slipped down editorial agendas. It didn't mean to say that the deaths were ceasing to occur, but people were bored with it. I think because they realised editors thought well, at the end of the day nothing's going to come of this. Our reporting is not going to change anything, and unfortunately it didn't. At least not then. I mean, it's still remembered... But um, I think that's one of the things, I think that's why I draw attention to the political. I think it defines, of course, how conflicts arise, but I think it also defines which conflicts are reported. Um, and I think a lot of journalists would say, no, no, we, are, we operate independently of our governments or our government's diplomatic priorities. But of course they don't. Because um, why was the war in Iraq covered so much in this country? Well, because we committed a lot of troops to it. Same with Afghanistan. Well, well, when I was reading that part of your book, uh, and I was very struck by that argument because, you know, the, the, the Chechen wars were small, but they were extraordinarily bloody. Uh, and, the, the, you know, the, they drew in civilians and killed civilians in their thousands every day. Absolutely horrible wars. Uh, but it made me think of, a, of, a, of another thing. When I was editing uh, NewsHour, uh, again at the BBC World Service, uh, there were two conflicts that came along that were quite close together and you were involved in one of them. And there were similarities between them and yet they were being covered in completely different ways. And we're talking about Gaza, uh, where the, we, we had the Israeli incursion into Gaza and you were involved as the, you were the Gaza correspondent for the BBC mm. at the time. And not long after that, I believe we had the Sri Lanka, the end of the Sri Lankan civil war where President Rajapaksa um, moved in to destroy the Tamil Tigers. And it was, in in some senses, militarily, it was a very, very similar thing. It was a, it was a kind of push in, keep the media out as much as possible, and lots of civilians will get caught up, but it was necessary f for military reasons. Now, the Gaza conflict was on the TV screens every single night in this country and on the big worldwide networks. Uh, the Sri Lankan civil war wasn't. And there was, to some extent, you could see that that was being explained by the fact that, that Gaza was something that people felt as though they had a stake in, that uh, diplomatically there was something that, that could be done or pressure or whatever, whereas Sri Lanka really was a civil war. It was something that no matter what happened there, uh, you could condemn things, but it was still a small corner of Sri Lanka being affected and there weren't the, the diplomatic repercussions. I think the two conflicts, you, the two examples you give are very interesting for two reasons. One, because I think they're similar in one way, and one because, uh, as you rightly pointed out, they differed in terms of, of the perceived public response. Um, they are, however, similar to the extent that, uh, and this again is a rather bleak conclusion for a journalist, I think, on this occasion, the governments decided, um, the Israeli and the Sri Lankan governments decided just not to let international journalists mm -hmm. enter. And from their communications point of view, I think it worked rather well unfortunately, because I don't think we ever built up a true picture of what was happening in either place, certainly not in Sri Lanka. I think in Gaza to some extent afterwards, uh, and there were, um, as, as I write about at length in the book, there were many courageous Palestinian journalists who were working yes. in fairly junior positions for international broadcasters who found themselves thrust into the limelight and fulfilling the roles which their international, in most cases for the BBC at least, British or United States for CNN, colleagues would normally have been doing. So I think Gaza, I think, in the end was a more complete picture but can you imagine um, how much more complete a picture it would have been if everybody had been able to get in? So mm. um, I think, and it goes to show, and I think it really throws into question the um, effectiveness of uh, digital media and of social media in fulfilling that gap, because I think, it, I think it, in a way it illustrates its limits, um, because... On, that, on those two occasions, the fact that, I mean, I think there, were, there, was, there was less um, user-generated content, as they say, coming out of, uh, of northern Sri Lanka, but there was obviously a lot coming out of Gaza. However, I think it would have had more impact had there been international reporters in there. Um, and we mentioned the personal as being an element, too. I, I think um, going to Gaza, too, in, in comparison with Chechnya, I was slightly surprised when I went there, having covered the Chechen conflicts prior to that, 
Um, I asked myself why this was getting so very much attention when you considered, I mean, pure terms, in terms of numbers, mm. a lot fewer people died in the Intifada <clears throat> than they did in the two Chechen wars. But again, um, it's something that you prepare yourself for as well. I think I went to Gaza expecting some of the horrors that I've seen in Chechnya, and yet the conflict wasn't on anything like the same scale. Um, but was getting a lot more attention, certainly then, anyway. Um, one other thing that that, that uh, comes out of the book is, and this is perhaps because you are so experienced in these situations, it is the, the, the acknowledgement that what you can do as a single reporter on the ground, uh, whatever technology is at your disposal, whatever access you have, is always necessarily extremely limited. And uh, this was actually something that came out of uh, your experience in the, uh, was it the first um, first Chechen war where you really realised, well, whatever I do today, I'm not going to be able to understand what's going on to the extent that, that I need to. Mm, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I think that is changing now. And when later in Gaza, when uh, I worked with um, a Palestinian colleague who was then the BBC's Arabic service correspondent in the territory, Fayyad Abu Shamala, mm-hmm. who had an excellent network of contacts. We worked collaboratively very well together. Um, I was able to get information from international diplomatic sources and from the Israeli army. It's obviously very difficult for a Palestinian journalist to telephone the Israeli army press office. Um, so that that worked quite well together, but it was. I mean, I, I, there is there is a limit, I think, um, which is why my conclusion would be: yes, reporting can influence and it can change things, but there has to be pre-existing political or diplomatic will. It can only act on that. I don't think. It, I think it, it's a, it's claim to to create that or to, to provoke that response in the first place is is um, is often overstated. I'm afraid, and 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 if. And there's a far greater authority than I on this. I, um, the Imperial War Museum here in London um, recently had an exhibition of the work of the photographer Don McCullen. And part of that, I was very struck, but they have uh, playing um, among the exhibits, they have an audio interview with Don McCullen. And he too questions this, you know, he's reflecting on it and saying, you know, unfortunately, I don't think my work really changed anything. I mean, I wouldn't draw such a stark conclusion because I think you know his work is 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 almost peerless in his in his in his chronicling of the wars of Vietnam and after but I think I think it's something that a lot of journalists do come to see and I think perhaps when you're first starting out as a young reporter or you're first going abroad on these assignments you do have this idea of journalists as these heroes who'll change the world but unfortunately mm. the reality isn't that simple and as I say I think for journalism to have a real diplomatic or political effect there has to be some kind of pre-existing political will to do something about it mm. uh, and I would contrast as I say the examples of Chechnya where there wasn't political will uh, and Libya where I think you know there was political will and it was seen as something that was possible. I've just noticed in my in my notes it was actually when you were in Georgia in 1992 uh, that that you started, and that was your first experience of conflict, I believe. Yes, it and, was, and, yeah. and that was where you saw just how how limited it was for one particular reporter. Uh, and the other thing that that was your insight from that first experience is that no one thinks of you as a reporter as neutral. You know, they're all involved in something that's life and death. No matter how you report upon it, you are always going to be seen as favouring one side or the other. How difficult does that get? I think it gets very difficult, and it's my impression it's been getting worse, actually. I mean, if you, I mean, at the extreme end, if you look at the number of journalists who are killed these days, where those um, statistics are kept by organisations like the International Federation of Journalists mm-hmm. and the Committee to Protect Journalists, they're getting worse and worse. And I think that may be... I, I, I fear that there's a perception that journalists are... I hate to use the word, I hate to use the phrase, but almost that journalists are fair game, whereas I think even when I was starting out in the early 1990s, there was a greater respect, or a, if, if that's the right word, but certainly a sense that journalists were somehow separate. Now, mm-hmm. this idea that journalists are not telling the truth, you know, or, or are not giving the, the required version of events is, of course, probably as old as war reporting itself. There's always going to be those kind of complaints. It does get extremely difficult. I mean, I think that's one case in which working for an organisation as devoted to impartiality as the BBC is, 
Of course, whether it always achieves that, I, I think the BBC itself would concede that that would be an impossible task. Nevertheless, it's a very important part of its journalistic ethos. So when you find yourself in that sort of confrontational situation, you have this sort of default mode to fall back on, mm -hmm. where you're almost trained not to give your personal opinions of anything. Or if you do, you do it in the context of giving equal weight to, a, to the varying points of view that are coming to bear on it. Um, so yes, that does get difficult. I mean, obviously... It's most uh, extremely difficult when you're, um, you know, when you're likely to put yourself in personal danger. But I think uh, this is a moment at which I should make the point that, um, as an international journalist in those places, in most cases, I mean, aside from the physical danger of being in the conflict zone, in most places, the worst that um, can happen to you is your, uh, particularly if you're operating in an area where there's an established army or government, the worst thing that's probably going to happen to you is you're going to be detained for a while and thrown out. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, for those people with whom you're working, the local people, the, the stakes are immeasurably higher, whether that be in terms of their own personal safety or that of their family or that of their properties. Um, so I think that's something that we really need to consider. I was acutely aware of that when I was working in Gaza. Just You can't, as a Westerner living there for a couple of years, ever fully appreciate the claustrophobia that it must be for the majority of the population who are unable to leave. Yeah. But sometimes and their you, families, that was one of the key and points their families. That you make. Well, that's right, I mean, and that's one of the big differences. I mean, um, in, the, in the chapter that I, I've entitled, Remember It's Not Your War, uh, it's about reporter involvement. Now, for those Palestinians who were covering the Israeli incursion into Gaza in early 2009, they were literally, in some cases, with their backs to their own apartment buildings. Now, I've been in a lot of very dangerous places. I've never experienced that. I've never experienced having to cover a conflict which involved, for me, such huge personal family or material stakes as that. So I think that's another thing which, um, which needs to be borne in mind, too, I think, for those people who are working in areas where they are, um, you know, where, where they actually live. And I think, you know, there's a lot. One example which I don't go into in the book because I was quite careful, particularly given I was trying to write short, quite a short book to use what um, insights I could gain from my own personal experience. But if we look at those journalists who are covering the drug wars in Mexico and the huge um, t prices that they're paying in terms of death and injury, I think, you know, they're, they're, um, I think their courage should probably be more widely recognised than perhaps it is. One other aspect of objectivity, and maybe it comes out of what we were saying about, about Gaza, but it also brings in questions such as being embedded with, uh, with regular troops, as, as people were in, the, in both Gulf Wars, um, is that acknowledgement that the reporter is not everything. The reporter is there to give one particular viewpoint. As we say, it's quite a limited viewpoint necessarily because war is a very confusing thing and you can only be in one place at one time, problems of access, etc. Um, when you're on the ground, I'll take it back to my own situation. For instance, with Gaza and with, uh, with uh, several other conflicts that we've covered, I've often been you know, the editor of a, of a radio news program on the, the World Service. And you're aware that it's, uh, within a program, you can present various things that then build up a much bigger picture. Um, and over time, you can represent different things. We'll talk about the Russia-Georgia war uh, very shortly because I was editing Europe Today and NewsHour around that time. Mm. And I was actually writing a thesis on it at exactly that time. In fact, I was, I was trying to explain how a war was impossible between... Uh, which was a bit of a mistake. You weren't alone there, I don't think, Nicholas. <laughs> uh, I was actually doing that exactly in that August. Uh, I was handing it in there. It was a bit of a disaster. Anyway, um, and, and the, the point was that you knew that, that, that it was a composite picture that you built up. And so, uh, you know, the reporter was a tool in your toolbox as opposed to the central figure. Um, when you're actually on the ground and you're in the Russia-Georgia war, or you're in Chechnya, or you're in Gaza, especially something like Gaza where the picture is being built up in Tel Aviv and so on, uh, how much are you aware of your role in a in that in that larger mosaic well i think you're as aware as you can be you try to be and i think the answer to the question probably depends upon the given day i mean if you're in the middle of something very very intense like um one example i would give would be um the uh, attempted assassination by the israeli air force of um, abdulaziz al-rantisi a hamas leader mm -hmm. uh, in the summer of 2003 he was actually killed by the israelis the next year but on that occasion their attempt to kill him failed um, that was a tremendously busy day it was a key time it was around the time when um, the roadmap for middle east peace was being very heavily promoted by the united states and its partners in the quartet 
and that was a real there's a kind of day when you feel to a very large extent that you're um you're you're very very close up to what you're doing you know the deadlines are absolutely constant you just have to keep satisfying that finding the the latest facts which you can getting the latest reactions which you can and again trying to bring in that idea of the bigger picture what is this going to mean for the 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 roadmap as it was then as i say launched to much fanfare in that summer of 2003 um so, so you, personally, you were trying to bring in as much context. Well, you try as to because you try to explain to people. I mean, you have to understand. You have to try to. I mean, I think one of the great um, skills that a correspondent can bring is to try to always look at things with the eyes and ears of their audience, because it's difficult. I mean, it's something I say to my students now. You know, always try to look at things anew. Try to remember that you are describing things. You're describing Gaza or, or wherever else it may be for people who have never been there, have no idea what it's like and who will never go there, but nevertheless you're trying to persuade them that it's important what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, of course, on a breaking news story like that, then the basic facts of the uh, event as it's unfolding are the key thing, but then afterwards you do, however short your report, need to explain why this matters to people. Um, that's sometimes very hard on a day when you've got all these... Um, continuing developments and continuing deadlines so I think it's very useful to try to sort of take a breath particularly towards the end of the day if you can and try to sum it up but that's not always possible I mean there were times in Gaza when I did work for sort of 20-22 hours I don't think I ever went right round the clock but then you know 20-22 hours and then a few hours rest and then continue Um, so it is a little bit difficult in that case and I think that was actually one of my motives in writing the book to try to reflect on these things a little it's my my main personal motive in it afterwards Um, and hope that in sharing that experience, uh, I would assist you know the current and future generation of, of journalists to do a little of the same. Um, that's why, and you know, I say I wanted to teach people what I wish I'd known myself mm-hmm. twenty years ago, really. But I think, uh, and I think that's where academic, where university journalism departments really can assist um, people. I mean, I was at um, I was at a conference at the BBC a couple of months ago for university journalism lecturers, uh, which leading BBC editors explained what they were looking for um, in journalism and media studies graduates. And one of the things which I took away from that was a senior editor from a a major current affairs programme saying, what we want you to do, speaking to the lecturers, what we want you to do is to teach people how to think. Mm-hmm. Because they're saying, you know, we can teach them the technology, and the technology is changing very fast anyway. So, yes, of course, getting the basics of the craft skills are very important. But he said, we want you to teach people how to think, and that's what I'm, I'm trying, I hope, to do to some extent in the book, to consider what you're doing. Why is somebody telling you this? Why is that very helpful um, communications man from the, the hired PR agency who's been hired by a government or other providing you with all this helpful material? Is he doing it to make your job easier, or is he doing it because he wants to get his client's message across? The latter, of course, but you have to be aware of that all the time. I'm glad that you brought in PR people because this leads us to a documentary which is still on my iPod um, and, and it's one that you made at the BBC World Service with, with Dave Edmonds, uh, uh, one of the best producers that the BBC's ever had and that was called the PR Battle for the Caucasus and we go back to the war that broke out, uh, was it four years ago this August, uh, this very August um, and that was between Russia and, and Georgia over uh, a territory called South Ossetia, which isn't far away from the capital, Tbilisi. Um, the Georgians, uh, the president, Saakashvili, was something of a media darling in the West. And this meant that when the war began, um, things were very, very much seen through the Georgian point of view. And they had a, a PR company involved in this, etc. Uh, and then the Russians, and you were talking about your own experience with uh, with Lavrov up in Moscow, and how mm, it, how they suddenly yeah. realised that it was going to be so important for them to give their account of the story. Uh, and you made this documentary about it. I, I must admit, it, it resonated for me partly because not long before I'd been the correspondent over in Sarajevo for the BBC. Mm. And uh, one trip that I did was up to Banja Luka in Republika Srpska, which is the ethnic Serbian uh, territory within Bosnia. And they actually had a, a, a PR agency working for them from Brussels. Mm. And, uh, you know, they put on a special trip. And it was fascinating to see how they were trying to portray, you know, in effect, what most outsiders would see as the villains from the Bosnian wars of the early 90s, and be able to say, well, you know, that's all in the past, things have moved on, and look, look what's happening now, and look how forward thinking they are. So, 
can you just give us a little bit more about about the kind of thesis that you put together in this program? Yeah, I was I was really struck by it. I mean, in making that program, describing President Saakashvili, um, David Edmonds, the, the producer, as you say, came up with a rather wonderful phrase for him, which we used in the script that he was a breaking news president. And it was remarkable to me that somebody whose country was at war could spend so very much time on um, international news channels. But Mr. Saakashvili, United States educated, speaks excellent English and understands yeah. very well how the international English language media works uh, and played that very much to his advantage. Um, but We were able to get him up on NewsHour in Europe today almost, you know, just by phoning them up 10 minutes before we needed him. It, was, it really was striking, I think. And um, one of his officials uh, estimated afterwards, an interior ministry official who we also interviewed for the programme, said I think that he, he felt he'd given a thousand telephone interviews. Now, David and I, in working this out, tried to work out mathematically whether that was possible over the course of a, of a five-day conflict, and we were trying to work out the frequency. But anyway, whether or not that figure is exactly right or whatever the period of time is, mm -hmm. nevertheless. Um, but they clearly decided that was, it was what it was going to be. I mean, um, perhaps one day we'll know the full story. It, it seems from, from one school of thought would suggest that Georgia seriously miscalculated and they thought by getting involved in this conflict they would somehow... Um, get a little more than moral support, at least from the United States. When that didn't materialise, um, even though the Georgian army had uh, been part of, very much part of President Saakashvili's reform programme, it was pretty clear that they were going to be overrun within a matter of days because, you know, the Russian army, for all its problems and all its, ne its own need for reform, uh, is vastly superior in numbers, mm. obviously, and um, much larger country. So it seems that the Georgians decided we will play to our strengths, we will go. They seem to target particularly international uh, English language television news channels, most particularly CNN and BBC World uh, News. So um, that was what they decided to do, and they were constant presence, and it seemed that the Russians were stung into responding to this. I mean, I, I, this was the most remarkable thing of the entire conflict for me, I think, in terms of the, the media coverage. Because um, I first worked in Moscow in 1991. I, I'm just about old enough to have a press pass with the USSR on it. It's one of my treasured possessions. Um, and never in that time since have always been, because the, the, the post-Soviet diplomatic relationship between Russia and the West has often had its low points, particularly Kosovo I would draw attention mm -hmm. to in that category. It's often very difficult for a Western journalist to get decent access to senior officials. Yet here they were very suddenly coming out to talk to us and we were getting unprecedented cooperation. The public uh, relations agency who were looking after the, the Russian side of the story used to send, used to arrange conference calls occasionally for journalists with senior officials. This had been a relationship that started uh, when Russia was um, uh, president of the G8 in 2006. Uh, and that morning, it was a Saturday morning after the, the war had started overnight from Thursday into Friday, I got an email inviting me to take part in a conference call with Mr. Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, superseded an hour or so later by an offer to go on a Saturday morning to the foreign ministry and have a sit-down interview. And I was the first of, I think, three or four interviews which he gave to major uh, international broadcasters that day. Uh, it really was a remarkable turnaround in terms of access. Certainly, I mean, that, an interview with the foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister, is not something which happens at the drop of a hat. You know, it's mm -hmm. something which is usually the combination of a long negotiation, um, of official exchange of official letters, and so on and so on. But it was clear, it seemed to me, and then also we had a number of... Um, senior Russian political, diplomatic and military figures, all of whom spoke very good English, perhaps queuing up is putting it too strongly, but making themselves available uh, either for interview for us, for our reports from Moscow, or as studio guests for various BBC news outlets, to the extent that we had a producer there who was assigned just to sort of manage the contributors to make sure that each program was getting what they were looking for. But the Russians, that was unprecedented cooperation. I have to say it didn't last terribly long either. I don't know if they felt that the strategy didn't work or if that was an approach which hadn't served them terribly well. Um, but certainly it was um, a sense uh, that they, were, they really wanted to get involved in this and I think they did feel that they were coming off second best, the Georgians at least to begin with. Uh, just to let you know, I'll put a, a link to that particular program, which I presume is still up on the BBC website. I put a link to it know, yeah. uh, on the uh, New Books Network website next to the blog post introducing this particular interview. Um, and it's well worth a listen. Um, 
We'll move on now because uh, one of the other things that, that's quite evident about the technological side of what you're talking about is, is satellite news gathering. Uh, as you were saying, sometimes uh, when you're in Gaza, you could be on, on the line pretty much for 20 hours, 22 hours. Um, there is a an enormous demand, especially for an organisation like the BBC, where you have so many different outlets. I mean, quite often you could find yourself filing things for TV and then suddenly you'd be doing a piece for for BBC online and then you'd be doing Radio 4, the domestic, uh, you know, main domestic channel. Then you'd be doing Radio 5, then you'd be doing... BBC World Service and then you, and so on and and it, to be honest if you're being paid per piece it works out quite fruitfully mm. but at the other uh, the other end of the scale uh, when you're doing what was often called live and continuous broadcasting uh, you are basically you know uh, well the phrase in in the BBC was often you're just a gob on a stick mm. you know you could be anywhere but it just happens that you have the byline you're in the location you might have the pictures behind you but you have very little access to what's actually going on there beyond what maybe your colleagues come up with or your own computer terminal, which has got the wires from Reuters, AP, AFP. Mm. How much has that changed things? I think it's changed things quite a lot. And I think for the future, it's slightly worrying because there seems to be, and it's not, it's not a sudden thing, it's been a gradual process over the last 10 plus years. I mean, particularly if one looks at the major news organisations in the United States, there's been a trend away from having resident-based correspondence. Now, the situation which you describe of being tied to the microphone or, or tied to the TV camera, I think is less of a concern if you know your area very well and you know your story very well. Ah, but a lot of people are often flown in, especially with TV news. That's right, and I think that is a big problem. And I don't. And, I, and the only answer to that, and I think the the antidote to that, is to use people who have that knowledge there. Now, when I've been in Gaza for you know a year or so, when I was having those stories like that, if something, an incident had happened in a particular part of the territory, now it's a tiny territory, you get to know it pretty well mm -hmm. after a few months. Um, it's only forty kilometres by ten. It really is very very small from from, from one end to the other. Um, so if there was talking, I made a point on quiet days. I mean, I made a point of just going out, going out for a drive or, or going out just to see what was going on. If I hadn't mm. been to a part of the territory for a while, I'd say, um, I'd say to my colleagues, let's go down here. Let's go and have a look. We haven't been there for a while. Do you remember we did that interview with that person there? Let's go and see how they're getting on. Yeah, you talk so, to people, you, you go to restaurants. That's right, and it wouldn't whatever. necessarily um, provide a story that day, but maybe the next day there was going to be a major incident there. And so it, it troubled me less that I was reading second-hand information if I'd just been there the day before because I could picture it in my head or I knew people there or I could talk to Completely people. Um, but with, with what's called um, rooftop journalism, a reference to the fact that these, often these live positions are on the rooftops of luxury hotels because they've got a nice view of the area behind, or parachute journalism, the idea being, of course, that people are, are parachuted in, I think is, is much greater concern um, because people do not have that in-depth knowledge um, do not have the ability to put things into context. Let's not forget that, you know, particularly in Western democratic countries where a president or a prime minister's term in office or a foreign minister's, particularly because of the political pressures which surround them, may be very short, you've got journalists who know a great deal more than a lot of policymakers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something which isn't... I mean, I'm not suggesting that journalists should be in charge of making policy. If they wanted to do that, then they probably would have gone to be in charge of making policy. God forbid. Well, exactly. <laughs> but I think um, in some cases, you know, they do have... Uh, I, I'll make a, a slightly separate but related point in a moment, but I think they do have um, this knowledge which um, policymakers don't. How many times had George Bush ever been to a refugee camp in Gaza before he's tried to start making Middle East peace? Never. Mm. I mean, obviously, he has, he has officials who've been there. But, you know, in that respect, the journalists who have been there and who do go and talk to people there have a much greater first-hand knowledge. Uh, and the related point that I wanted to make was something which struck me both in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and also particularly in the Russia-Georgia conflict, and it was this. As a journalist, you have a very, very rare perspective. In some conflict zones, like the two I've just mentioned, you have the opportunity to go from one side to the other, which a lot of people don't. It's mm -hmm. extremely difficult for them to do that. I was spent um, a week in Georgia a couple of years before the war. I spent a week there in the autumn of 2006 when South Ossetia was having a referendum on independence. Ah, yes. And um, 
On that occasion, I got to spend four days in the territory in South Ossetia, and then I spent three days with the Georgian army doing a story about how they wanted to join NATO and their preparations for taking part in the uh, occupation of Iraq. And I came away with an insight, um, convinced that the two sides absolutely didn't understand each other. And I could see that there was the makings there of a war, although I was not among those who predicted it. I, too, thought that the, both sides would see the consequences of the war would... Um, make it uh, foolish to start it although that wasn't the way that it turned out but it was quite clear to me it seemed that the Georgian officials who were making policy to try to draw South Ossetia back under central government control by making it economically attractive for them didn't understand the views of the South Ossetians mm -hmm. and, um, and nor did the South Ossetians understand how determined the Georgian government were to do that either and I, and I think and, that's, that it, and, and again you know in, in Gaza I could be in Rafa refugee camp and then that afternoon in the morning and the afternoon I could be in West Jerusalem mm -hmm. and it was, it was a very very rare it was a journey that very 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 few people were able to make in those times so you do get this perspective that's in, denied to many people including in a lot of cases to policy makers Moving on, and it's partly because we're, we're, we don't have an enormous amount of time. Um, just following on from that whole idea of, of people, you know, parachute journalism, as you say, there one thing that ha uh, that certainly the wider public seems to think of when it comes to uh, to war correspondence is this glamorous aspect of it, uh, and this uh, perhaps has fed into the idea that there is a you know personality journalism. You know, you have big names, especially on the TV channels. You fly them in, and they're the person that stands up there. And we had phrases like "scud stud" and so on during the first um, the first Iraq War. Uh, do you think that personality gets in the way of good journalism? I think it can do, but I think it can also help. I mean, I, th I can think of a lot of good examples of that. I mean, if you think of people. Um, like Alan Little or Lindsay Hilsom or something, they have earned their authority because they have covered these areas you know, for many years and they are able to bring to bear that experience. Even though they don't have direct experience of that particular conflict, then um, th those, are the, those are the good examples of it, if you like. Um, but yes, uh, unquestionably, there are bad examples of it. There are people... Um, where it's decided, I mean, I think the, the big sort of, uh, the, the big malaise, if you like, of recent particularly English-speaking journalism has been this idea of the reporter getting bigger than the story. And it's mm. just not what it should be about, in my opinion, at all. Um, Alan Little, um, who I was delighted wrote the foreword to the book, recently accepted the Charles Wheeler Award for an for outstanding contribution to broadcast journalism. And at the awards ceremony, he said of Charles Wheeler, it was never about him. Mm. And that was, that's been a sort of guiding principle for me too. I think it should be a guiding principle for all journalists. Good journalism, should put, you should put, be able to put yourself at the heart of the story to show that you're there and that you have got a good first-hand knowledge of what's happening, at least in your immediate surroundings. But you should never become the story. And I think in, in the worst mm. sort of excesses of, of personality-led TV journalism, that's certainly what happens to the extent that the, the story becomes, in effect, these people are in an awful situation, but don't worry because this wealthy person from a wealthy country has turned up and is going to walk around and talk to them for a little while. Absolutely. Well, Charles Wheeler, one of the things that I thought was a trademark of his uh, was his incredibly sparing use of his own input. So if there were pictures there that told a story, he was there and he just dropped in, you know, a handful of, uh, of words every 30 seconds or so just to direct the viewer as opposed to, you know, become the centre of the mm. story himself. And perhaps this is a, a good opportunity to ask a, a question that... Um, that, that, that was with me through the book. Maybe it's an unfair one, but are there any? Is there any single journalist that you can think of that that that, that was anything of an exemplar? You you you've just mentioned two there: Charles Wheeler, Alan Little. We both know. Um, then we go back to William Howard Russell back in the Crimean War, who is accepted as perhaps the the first proper uh, foreign correspondent. You've got Michael Hare. Uh, John Reed, Vasily Grossman, Anna Politkovskaya. Uh, do any of those stand out as, as somebody who you look up to and say, right, well, it's a tough field, but that might that person was the best? Yeah, I, well, I, it's very difficult to single one. Which is why I'm but, asking yeah, you. Yeah, and no, I think all the names <laughs> that you've mentioned, I think, would, would go there, I mean, for different reasons. I mean, I, you know, I admire their courage and their writing skills. And I think what is really remarkable sometimes, I think, when you think what the, the combination of skills that you need, you need to have 
Um, I mean, there's that, ni- there's that 19th century description about, you know, to be a successful journalist, you need a, a, a modicum of literary abil- ability, a plausible manner, and a rat-like cunning. I mean, that's perhaps for sort of more yellow journalism. But for this, I mean, I, I find it particularly... I mean, I once was very keen to write particularly about Anna Politkovska and Vasily Grossman in the book because I don't think their work is widely enough known internationally mm-hmm. and I hope that you know in some small way I've contributed to building their reputations not that they, they should need to but I think to be able to have that investigative that curiosity that great ability to find out the stories but then to tell them so very well too is really remarkable I mean I think mm-hmm. um, and that's but I, I can't I can't pick out one single person and say you know they are I, I think all of the names that you've mentioned would, would be up there in the list of, of the all time greats mm-hmm. definitely and I think um, for that ability to, to find things out to have the determination to get to difficult places and then in those most difficult of circumstances to be able to write so very well too yeah I was very interested by what you said about Anna Politkovskaya because I'd read some of her work on the on the Chechen wars. Uh, I remember during the time when you were actually um, covering the Second Gulf War uh, a few years ago. I was actually the BBC's Warsaw correspondent. I was based in Moscow for a few years to cover the absence of people like you. Obviously, with a diplomatic build up to the Gulf War, and then what actually happened. And at uh, one point, I, I went along to a press conference with Anna Politkovskaya, and I, and I, I I must admit that my impression of her. Uh, wasn't uh, as positive as yours, but in re- you know because she seemed such a, I won't say a, a single tone voice, but she was so insistent about her particular you know what she had seen, uh, and the same comes for some of her books. I mean, it was mm. almost a, a, a relentless documentation of atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. But reading what you actually wrote about her makes rounds her out a lot more, and you actually make a very convincing case that despite this, she actually was she can be considered a very objective voice. Yeah, which I think is probably probably a description that would raise some hackles in certain official circles yes. in Moscow. Although um, I was lucky enough once, uh, when I was living in Copenhagen, uh, Anna Politkovska was visiting as a guest of Danish Pen, the writer's organisation, and I got a message to her saying that I'd very much like to meet her, and I did. We spent two hours talking um, mm-hmm. about... It was not long after... It was a while since I'd been to Russia then. It was just after I'd finished in Gaza. And I had a long conversation with her one afternoon just to talk about her experiences. Um, and it was fascinating just how very well connected she was she had a lot of you know despite her um tireless chronicling of some of the atrocities committed by the russian military she had a very very wide range of russian military contacts mm-hmm. um she really got under the skin of the story i mean the example that i um use in the book is that you know stories that we western journalists just sort of were vaguely aware of a particular example that I um, remember was one of the amount of racketeering that was going on, the illegal economic activity by the Russian military, which Mm -hmm. has been confirmed to me by very senior Russian sources subsequently as one of the main reasons why they were unable to operate more effectively there. But she goes into it in great detail, and she got the story that we Western journalists didn't, really, Mm -hmm. and I think that it's commendable. And I think... um, and presumably she uh, she paid for her reporting with her life. We're probably not mm. going to know exactly what the circumstances are, but it's very, very difficult to imagine it wasn't related to her profession of journalism. Absolutely remarkable woman. Uh, I have one more question, which I suppose I should have shoved in a bit earlier on, uh, perhaps when we were talking about per- personality journalism or, the, uh, or parachute journalism or whatever, and that is um, working for so many years in the BBC, I've always been aware, both within our our own output within the BBC and outside, that there are some areas of, you might call it, uh, technical expertise that are a bit lacking uh, in normal life. And perhaps the the economic problems of the last few years have shown this up. Mm. Uh, maybe, Maybe there's a lack of real understanding of business life, of economic life, scientific life, perhaps. Uh, And when it comes to times of conflict, I've always thought that maybe journalists don't know enough about what actually happens in in warfare or or about the military point of view. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think that we do okay, or do you think we ought to put more effort into actually understanding the difference between, say, different types of weapons and how that actually affects things on the ground? I think we do okay. I mean, because remember that we're not supposed to be military experts, and you do get some journalists who are clearly enthusiasts for for matters military. But I think we're we're supposed to be the representative or or, or the eyes and ears for a, a more, much more general audience. And um, 
And we're also, you know, in the case of uh, in the case of the recent wars of in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're also the representatives that people are paying for it. After all, mm-hmm. um, but you're so, also there to understand, you yeah. know, what is happening. You're, you, as we were saying earlier on when we were talking about Gaza, you're there to actually understand a little bit more about what's happening on the ground and to give that context. And yes. the context surely goes into much more specific matters. Yeah. And warfare is such a specific matter. It is. I mean, I think there's. I think there's a case for doing that. I mean, I'm personally. I'm. I'm a, I'm a reader of military history. I'm not a reader of military manuals, and never have been. I mean, um, I hate weapons. To be honest with you, I've never been a sort of gun enthusiast, and I, and I and I'm glad that I now live in a country where I don't see them every day. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I think. But I think it's about keeping a distance too. I mean, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I not. But I, I don't. Um, you know, pretend that. Uh, know that war doesn't exist or or you know and i never ask my question you know why can't there just be peace in the world you know as, a, as an idealistic mm-hmm. teenager might because there's any number of reasons why there can't just be peace in the world but yes any kind of expertise is useful i mean one which i would particularly um draw attention to uh comes back to that idea of not being parachuted in and i think it does can em- encompass an understanding of military matters but it's very important to understand uh, linguistically and culturally um, if I get a second edition of this book that might be slightly longer, I would like to write a chapter exclusively on language. I speak Russian, so I knew when I was working in the former Soviet Union, I knew a lot of the sort of background chatter that was going on around me. I was picking it up um, without an, an understanding the cultural context of that because I, I'd, I'd studied Russian and lived in Russia for many years. I therefore knew when I went to the Middle East, and I don't speak more than a few words of Arabic, I, didn't, I knew exactly what I was missing. In other words, I knew there was an, an, an absence which my excellent um, local producers feel to a very large extent, but it's, it's not the same as acquiring it yourself. Mm. So in anything that you're doing, be it military matters, be it economic matters, although, by the way, I don't think the economic journalists did terribly well on the financial crisis either, the, the experts. Um, of course, you need. I think as a journalist, you must have insatiable curiosity and you must always want to read whatever it is mm-hmm. and I, but I think it's true and I think it's always been the case um, I've got a couple of students now who are from a scientific background I'm encouraging them very strongly saying look you have got a really rare combination nearly all journalists are humanities or arts graduates yes, you know, there are an insufficient number of people who've even studied economics um, and very few who've studied any kind of science subject so I think yes of course and, and hopefully um, if there is going to be anything about this idea of everyone's a journalist, it's going to bring a bit more of that kind of expertise in. But I think everybody should try to, every journalist should try to learn as much as he or she can. They've got to be humble. Yeah, exactly. As Alan Little says, the aspiration behind the book is to get it right rather than anything else. Um, just one final thing. What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on, well, I've got a couple of other books on the go. I'm, I'm actually going to be working on a chapter, um, I hope, for a forthcoming book on uh, journalism in post-Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also hoping to publish next year. I actually wrote a book of a reportage about my time in Gaza, which has been kicking around for a while. I'm hoping that this book will give me the impetus to finally get that one published as well. But um, my future more academic um, projects will be the chapter on journalism post-Soviet Russia and also hoping to write something about uh, diplomatic and journalistic discourses of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It'd be nice to talk to you again then. Anyway, it's been great great seeing you again, James. It's good having you in and thanks very much indeed for writing such a cracking book. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about my work. And that was James Rogers giving us the benefit of his thoughts and his experiences regarding the fraught issue of reporting conflict. This is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network wishing you a good day from here in London. Mm